0: Hooser and I am the RUF campus minister at Oklahoma State. Go folks. You can't you can't not do it. Uh, Yes, Uh, it it has been a privilege to uh, be able to minister to several of y'all's covenant uh, little kiddos. I know they're still your little precious angel babies and they are Um, and they're just growing up Uh, and they're awesome. Uh, Even just the other day I I had a meeting with Ricky Jones Jr., uh, a.k.a. Isaac, Um, and uh, it's it's awesome, just the similarities there. But uh, truly, I am very thankful. Thank you, Ricky and Jonathan in the session for allowing me to preach. If you would, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. We're just going to read verses 1 through 15 this morning. At RUF, one of our core principles is that we believe that Scripture is God's Word. And that means for our students that whenever we proclaim the Word, that what we're saying is that, hey, you might hear so many different things throughout the week. But here's where you can ultimately find truth. This is where you can have hope. Because there's a lot of people saying a lot of different things. And our students need to know where truth is. So with that in mind, let us read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord God's people said. There we go. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that in this time, in the preaching of the word, this very Christian act, Help us to know that it is not merely a man speaking, but it is you speaking through a sinner. And help us as we hear your word. That we would deal with you and that you would deal with us. Father, for those who are not believers in here, that they might see the Lord Jesus and believe. And Father, for those of us who have believed for as long as we can remember. Help us to continue to look to him, knowing that it's only in him that our sins can be dealt with. We need this hope this morning. And so we're asking, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to transform us, to apply this to our hearts. We ask all this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Everything he saw walking around the city made him think of some way that it could be better. He was always... Burning up with ideas, just burning up with them. So Robert Caro records the words of Francis Perkins, who was describing the great Robert Moses. Robert Moses uh, is the man who may have single-handedly transformed New York into ways in which no one has ever seen a city be transformed. Some have described Robert Moses as uh, arguably the greatest builder in the history of the world. And there was one particular idea that came to Robert Moses that really got him burning inside. And as Kara writes, one Sunday in 1914, excuse me, a group of young men and women where they were taking a ferry to a picnic in New Jersey. Robert Moses was standing beside Francis Perkins on the deck And as the ferry pulled out into the Hudson and the bleak mud flats of Manhattan Island, shrouded in smog, spread out behind them, he suddenly said excitedly, isn't this a temptation to you? Couldn't this waterfront be the most beautiful thing in the world? You see, Robert Moses had an eye for seeing something that could be developed out of nothing. But as much talent and vision as he had, he also produced a lot of havoc and destruction. And we love to see when people can take nothing and make it into something. But Robert Moses would often take something and make it into nothing. He had many creative visions and upgrades he gave to New York City, but he also destroyed a lot of people's homes and neighborhoods, and sometimes left places worse, worse, left places worse than they were before. It is not hard to see how bad things are today. It's not hard. There are so many different things that we see today, and we realize that the world truly is broken. It truly is fallen, but the question is this. Will there actually be someone greater than Robert Moses Who can make something out of nothing, but yet not leave things worse than they were before? Is there someone who can bring true transformation to this earth and to people? Can you do it? That's actually what the scripture verse is saying. That even as we made something into nothing, God knows how to make nothing into something. He knows how to bring transformation. But first... Before we see the hope of the good news, we do need to look at the bad news. Look at verse 1. The world is fallen. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so he said, the serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say that if you eat of any tree, that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. When God made the world, he made Adam the very first created human being. He made him as the representative of all humanity. And his performance would affect all of us. Now, at first up, might seem very unfair, but we actually really need to hold this uh, doctrine very dearly because only if one man can represent us, can we find actually, we can actually find salvation because that's how Jesus would come. Adam was our first representative. He was our first uh, covenant head as it were. And based on his performance, it would determine how this world would unfold. And it's like an ambassador who acts on behalf of other people. Their actions would affect the rest. And that's exactly where Satan wanted to attack. As the serpent, Satan knew that if he could just mess up the head, then he would therefore mess up humanity. And you see in verse 1 where it describes him as crafty. What does that mean? It means he's shrewd. He's clever. He's... Tricky. He's sneaky. He's sly. And whatever the S word you can come up with. In other words, this true evil, true evil is not always obvious and upfront. True evil slithers down by our feet without us knowing. And then when we finally look down, it has already struck. And what are his first words? Well, look at it. He asks a question. In other words, here's what Satan loves to do Satan loves to put a question mark where God puts a period. And he says this Did God actually say? It's always his first tactic. Because if Satan can convince us that the word of God is not authoritative, that it can't be trusted, that it could be watered down, or that if it doesn't have to be taken seriously, then he can win. That's where he attacks. He always attacks the word. That's how all false teaching creeps and slithers into God's people today. It can sound good. It can sound slick. It can even quote a lot of Scripture and talk a lot about Jesus. But at the end of the day, what it begins to do is it subtly asks, did God actually say? How does Eve respond? Well, she doesn't hold up God's Word as well as it could have been Held up. Actually, earlier in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God had told Adam that if he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. Now, in the Hebrew original text, when it says that they would die in Genesis 2, verse 17, it says they will die, die. That's how you would say the English translation of surely die. So in other words, God saying, Look, when you eat of this tree, you will die, die, but What does Eve say? Actually, if you were to look in the Hebrew, when she says, lest you die, she only says die once. She begins to water God's word down. But she doesn't only only water God's word down. She also adds to it. You see that at the end of verse three where it says, neither shall you touch it. But here's the thing. If you go back and read Genesis two, did God say that? No. No. You see, we have a phenomenal ability to water down God's word, but then also to add to it. That's that's where Satan wants to get us. And then once he gets us there, notice what happens in verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And now he directly contradicts God's word. And he says, look, you will not die. Die. You See that process there. It's always subtle he first uses the word of God and he waters it down and he twists it then he adds to it and finally he gets us to deny it all you see what Satan loves to get us to do is to say that sin is not that bad that one look or that one word or that one deed is not that bad You see, and what's his motivation for getting us to buy into these lies? Look at verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and here it is, and you will be like God. That is always the temptation underneath every other temptation that we have. You can be like God. Cheating on your spouse, if you just do that, then you will be like God. Or if you cheat other people in your business and gather this money or this power or this respect, then you will be like God. We love to be God. We don't like it when God is God. And that's exactly the truth that they buy into. And Adam close by surely is buying into it as well. And look at verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate once again watch how she is excuse me watch how she is tempted she sees the fruit then she delights in the fruit then she desires the fruit and then she takes it And it is very often the same process with us today. We look at temptation and the more and more we look at temptation and we think about that temptation, the more it forms those delights and desires and then we take and we eat. What's interesting is that after we fall into temptation, haven't we often been there where after we sin, we say, how in the world did I get myself in this situation? You've been there? Yeah. He's crafty. That's how it happens. You see, when she takes and eats, she turns and gives some to Adam. And when Adam eats, boom, their eyes are open. The fall has happened. They know they have sinned. And Adam has ruined humanity. Do you want to know why the world is the way it is today? Here it is. You can listen to so many other things in today's world. You can listen to so many things other people say. But at the bottom line, why is the world the way it is today? This. This is it. What does it mean for our world to be fallen? It means that in Adam, as Romans 5, the second half, talks about, it means that when Adam sinned, there's such a union with us and Adam that we sinned as well. You see, we're not only guilty for the sins that we live out today, we are actually also guilty for Adam's sin. And once again, you might say, well, how is that fair? Well, once again, spoiler alert, um, that has to be true if Jesus' righteousness will be imputed to us. We've got to hold on to this. The bad news first, then the good news. But if we reject the bad news, we inevitably reject the good news. And so when the fall happened, when original sin took place, what happened? Well, they died, died. But the story didn't end, did it? They died spiritually immediately. And that death would have ripple effects into dying mentally, emotionally, relationally and physically. You see, the heart of the problem in today's world is the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem in today's world is the problem of the heart. And it's not just the hearts out there. It's the hearts in here, the hearts standing here. Wherever we go, sin goes. Wherever we go, suffering goes. You see, even as Jerome, the fourth century theologian who tried to separate himself from the world and in order to never be tempted again, well, he began to notice that even when he was alone, he still had lustful thoughts. You see, wherever sinners go, sin goes with them. The reason why there is so much evil in the world today is because of the fall, and it's because of our sinful hearts, and it overflows into everything that we do. And so when their eyes are opened, they immediately are ashamed. Look at verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, when our eyes are opened to actually see our sin, when we see actually how naked and exposed we are spiritually, when we see how unclean and sinful we are what do we do we will do whatever it takes to clothe ourselves we love being spiritual tailors you know tailor makes clothes well that's what we do when we see our sin we're constantly trying to make our own clothes and we'll do whatever it takes to cover it up here's what brendan manning says Adam and Eve hid, and we all, in one way or another, have used them as our role models. And why? Because we do not like what we see. It's uncomfortable, it's intolerable to confront our true selves. And isn't that why we are often so obsessed with social media? Or the metaverse? Because what we can do there is we can clothe ourselves, we can be our spiritual tailors so that the world sees us the way we determine the world to see us. Because if they really saw us the way that we were, they would see there's a lot messed up in our own hearts. You see, the fall is why all tragedy has happened. The fall is the reason why there are broken bodies, broken relationships, murder, revolt, betrayal, backstabbing, war, gossip, political turmoil, And always death. Death is not natural. When you go to a funeral, and I try to tell my students this, when you go to a funeral, and if they're a believer, yes, you have unbelievable hope. But nevertheless, when you see death, you should say, things are not right. They need to be made right. That's what it means that the world is following but look at verses 8 through 13. It's not just that the world is fallen, but that this, this fall brings fall out. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. You see, we, when we see how dirty we are, we like to play hide, but we don't like it when other people play seek. Right? We love to play hide, but we don't like it when other people play seek. And that's what our consciences feel. Our conscience torments us when we see our very sin, our very failures, our very weaknesses. And rather than running to God, we run from God. We are all Jonah. God tells us to go this way and we say, nah, man, I'm going to go this way. That's what we do. But see, God loves us too much to leave us hiding. He plays seek. Look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, God has not literally lost them. He knows all things. He sees all things. He is everywhere. God has not literally lost them, but they have spiritually lost him. Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God asked another very searching question. Who told you you were naked? You see, their conscience has. They ate of the tree, they ruined it, and immediately their conscience accuses them. And that's what we go through that same process, don't we? Whenever we do something or we feel something or we taste something or we look at something, and whenever that happens, our conscience immediately accuses us. And that pain of a guilty and ashamed conscience can drive men and women into utter despair. Some of you have really felt that. We'll do anything to escape the pain. And here's one of the main ways we do it. We play the blame game. Look at verses 12 through 13. The man said, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So Adam blames Eve. Now look at verse 13. God goes to Eve. What does Eve do? She says that the serpent deceived me and I ate. See, we love to play the blame game. We love to point the finger at other people, but we often forget that when we point the finger to other people, we have three fingers pointing back at us. Sin destroys our relationship with God, with others, and even with ourselves. And when God's law exposes our sin, when our sin is exposed, we will do anything to escape the blame. And so what do we do? We blame others. Now to be sure, We live in a world where we are all simultaneously sinners and sufferers. It is not either or. And if we view ourselves as only one or the other, then we're actually going to interpret the world very wrongly. We are sinners and sufferers. And one of the things that modern psychology can often tell us is that we are only sufferers. We love to only place the blame on other people. And the way we are, the way that we are, is only the fault of other people. And this is actually the big ideology of Les Miz, author Victor Hugo. Victor Hugo believed that people are not bad, but they are made bad by their circumstances. But here's the thing. As bad as our circumstances might be and as bad as the sin is that others have sinned against us with, we are still not only sufferers. We are sufferers, but we're not only sufferers. If I can quote Austin Royal, who once said, sinners tend to respond sinfully to being sinned against. That's a good quote. Sinners tend to respond sinfully to being sinned against. And we do. That's why when one of the papers posed the question, what is the problem with the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote back two words. I am. We're not only sufferers, but we're also sinners. And sin just influences sin. You see, we have an enormous capacity to respond to being sinned against by sinning. The fall brings fallout. And that should build the tension here is this. Who in the world is going to save us? Is there possibly someone greater than Robert Moses who can see nothing and actually make it into something? Well, this is the good news. There is. Look at verses 14 to 15. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. So, in other words, God's giving a curse. But watch what happens in the midst of the curse. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now watch this. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. Now watch this. Here it is. The offspring of the woman, he... Shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let me ask you something. Which injury is worse, a foot injury or a head injury? You see, what is a curse? A curse is a binding word that determines reality. And whose curse is it? It is God's curse, it is not Satan's curse, even though he was cursed. But who is doing the cursing? God is. Now, that's actually good news. Because it means if we want the curse to be lifted, we need to deal with Him. And not try to make it better ourselves. You see, the curse is God's just penalty for sin. And that's why He gives it. You see, once again, you might be tempted to think, isn't this harsh of God to do? That everything that would be bad in the world, would flow from living in this cursed world. Isn't that harsh? Here's what would be even more harsh, is if the story ended at verse 13. Amen? As Sinclair Ferguson and John Curran have both said, the rest of the, book of the Bible is a footnote of Genesis 3.15. It is actually an incredible grace that God would not wipe everything out, and He would still be holy, 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 but he doesn't. He gives the curse and the curse grips us and, it, and it, it, it determines our reality. And one of the things in that curse that you see is that there's going to be enmity between these two lines. That's actually the, the big theme of the first five books of the Bible is that the godly line is always going to be attacked by the ungodly line. That's what Satan loves to do. But yet, amidst the curse, there is the promise. The serpent will find ultimate ruin. Amen? Come on now, we're going to get going. That's what I tell my students. We're gonna, this is good news. You see, someone from Eve, someone from Eve will come. Someone from a, 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 an actual hype born of a virgin with our own very flesh. If he threw a tennis ball to him, he would actually catch it. It wouldn't be like, you know, just a hologram where it would go through him. A true man, but yet also more than a man. Because we know that the true snake crusher would be God himself, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, taking on our flesh. Or as John 1 says, tabernacling amongst us. He would be the snake crusher. He would be the one who would crush the head of the serpent so that we might be set free. Imagine this, though. Imagine young Jesus reading this. you thought about this? Jesus would have had to grow like any other normal human being would have had to grow. And the Holy Spirit would have been making known to Him more and more what He would be doing on this earth and His purpose and think about as he would read this, what would he have thought? Here's what he would have thought That's me. And there is no other way. And, matter of fact, I am going to have to die for lifeless people so that they can live. Imagine as Jesus looked at the surrounding crucifixions. And as he saw bodies upon those crosses, and he was starting to put two and two together, and he would have realized so that's where it's going to happen. That's where the serpent is going to try to strike my heel. But when and as he strikes my heel, I will crush his head. It's amazing. It's amazing because even as he would read this, he would say, I am still going. Jesus is the one who came to do what Robert Moses could never do, what Adam could never do. He came at the opportune time in world history, and he had a showdown with Satan. He never gave in to temptation. He never sinned. He never had a sinful desire. He stood up to every test. He lifted every weight. He was perfectly righteous. And even when he went to the cross and took the wrath of God for the sins of his people, he never disobeyed he got all the way to the point as john nineteen thirty says where he would say one word in the greek translated in three words in english he would say it is finished imagine that it is finished here is how true transformation can come isaiah 53 verse 5 says and verse 10 but he was uh but he was pierced for our transgressions He was crushed for our iniquities, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And that's what Jesus would fulfill. God never had a plan B.
1: Because if God had a plan
0: B, how do we know he wouldn't have a plan C? God has always had a plan A, and because God has a plan A, you can look at this text and say that no matter how chaotic the world gets, no matter how chaotic my life gets, or no matter how chaotic my heart gets and all these simple desires and, and just trying to overcome it, you can know this: Jesus will win. Amen. He's the only one who can reverse the curse. He can only want, he's the only one who can bring true transformation. Listen, you are not saved because you feel sorry enough for your sins. You are not saved because you pray enough to be delivered. You are not saved because you come to church enough. God saved you when you were his enemy, not when you were his friend. That's what makes this amazing. It's all of grace and it is all of Jesus. And that is why Jesus must be everything that we do in ministry. And that means this, because of Jesus, I want you to think about all the ways in which you have had, you've gone through some of the worst sufferings in your individual life. The ways people have sinned against you, the ways people have, have just maybe tormented you or whatever it is, and the ways that you've sinned against other people. All of that will be reversed. You see, picture it this way. It's like you had a cup of water and that cup was filled and then your sin empties it. But God, when he restores you, does not just fill the cup back up. He takes that cup and puts it in the bottom of the sea. Is that cup filled? It is filled, but it is far more overflowing. That's what God's going to do through Jesus Christ. You see, look at verse 21, if I can skip ahead just for a second. God doesn't leave Adam and Eve trying to be their own spiritual tailors. Matter of fact, It's interesting because even though they had made themselves clothes, he still calls them naked. So in other words, this, even though you might try to clothe yourselves with social media or your business or your children's success or whatever it is, you might try to clothe yourself, but God still sees that you are naked. And so what does he do? Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. In other words, Something had to die in order to clothe them. That's what Jesus does for us. Jesus does not wait for us to clean ourselves up. He does not wait for us to come halfway. It's like the parable of the prodigal son. When that son comes back and he is still stinky, And put, put, an, put, put an A in stank. That, that dude's dirty. He doesn't say, dude, go take a shower and then I'll put the robe on you. No, no, no. He says, put it on him. Matter of fact, he almost tells him, if I may say, he's trying to make up his own excuse. And he basically says, Mm-mm, be quiet. Shut up. Take this robe. That's your identity. Amen? Amen. That's what you can have in Jesus Christ. It's amazing. You see, Jesus is the only one who can actually do what Robert Moses, what he could not do. There's a scene in the Lord of the Rings when Samwise Gamgee, he sees Gandalf after having survived imminent danger. And you've probably heard this or read this many times, but it's so good. Sam says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And in Jesus Christ, it will. That's the only way. And that's the good news that you can run to. That's the good news where you can stop trying to be enough. You can stop trying to clean yourself up. You can stop trying to be a spiritual tailor. And you can just come down. And you can just trust his promise that he is enough for you. Believe that. And you will be saved. And you will see your life in this world eventually transformed. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that by your grace and by your mercy alone, that you would bring us to yourself so that as we will sing in a second, that one day we will feast in the house of Zion. And even though it seems like this life is just taking crumbs and just leftovers that are spoiled and rotten, Jesus, we praise you that there will now be a feast in heaven for all those who trust you. Make it true in our hearts. Help us to have that hope. No matter how dark the day gets, there is light to come. We ask all this in your name. Amen.